All right. Welcome to Rich Talk. Thank you, Philip, for doing that. So Philip uh, went to two-thirds of our membership class, and then he got a, a special ending of the membership class over a cup of coffee with me, and, uh, and he joined our church. So he's, a, he's our, newest, our newest member. Yeah. Pretty cool. So I think, I think total, we have 20 members, official members here at Richstock. And um, those of you that are interested in, in that, you'll, you'll be hearing in the new year about classes that are coming up and that kind of stuff. Um, so we're a church plant, and uh, we started, our, I think our first worship service was August 28th. And um, as far as my experience of the church plant, really started about this time last year and thinking, okay, we're going to do this thing and talking with folks at the Austin Baptist Association and um, and then you just kind of wonder what what's going to happen. You know, are, are people going to want to be a part of this? And um, lo and behold, people want to be a part of it. And so here we are uh, finishing up 2022. And uh, we've got folks that have been a part of the church this whole time. We've had people that have come new every Sunday, including this morning. And uh, it's been it's been a really good, good uh, experience. And so we're excited to see what God will do in, in 2023. This is our last Sunday together as a church. We won't meet on Christmas Day, partly because most of you, when I did an informal poll, were like, I'm not going to be here. So um, it was just going to be like me and my wife and, and family and the Reynolds. I, I guess we could have had a worship service. We had a good time. That'd, be, that'd been a good time. That, oh, Caleb says he would have been here. Okay, well, maybe we will meet. No, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, today will be, this will be our, our last Sunday, and then we will have a, a, a Christmas service on Wednesday. So uh, and we're going to light the, the Christmas candle, and we're going to play like it's Christmas because uh, this, is, this is our chance to, to do kind of Christmas Eve uh, before everyone disappears. Um, so uh, this is, uh, as Jeremy said earlier, the fourth Sunday of Advent. And so we've been kind of putting ourselves in the place of Israel, waiting to look, to, and looking forward to the coming of the Messiah uh, at Christmas. We're also considering our own uh, waiting for the Messiah to come again. And uh, so I think it's just a great opportunity for us to prepare ourselves for Christmas. It's, it's not just um, the, the, the Christmas Day experience, but you, you're waiting, you're, you're preparing yourself. Um, and and it, I think it's really helpful to think about all the waiting that went on in the story, the unfolding story in the Old Testament. And um, there's a, a, a scene at the end of the two towers where... Sam is, is talking to Frodo, and this is the first time I've used a Lord of the Rings. Uh, I've been holding myself back, okay? So um, one a year at least. Uh, but they're, they're, this end of two towers, and so they're about to really get serious about going to Mordor, and they're looking up this, you know, this massive staircase. It's super steep and dangerous, and uh, Sam looks at Frodo, and he's like, I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. And it's like an acknowledgement of uh, an unseen author who's, who's writing their story. And, and they can kind of look back and see, uh, you know, the, the first two books of Two Towers, and they're looking forward with anticipation and probably a bit of dread as they think about how is this story uh, going to unfold. And uh, God's people, in, in a similar fashion, have been those who have looked back at God's work in the past and then looked forward uh, with hopeful anticipation of how the story would unfold. 
And they did that because they knew that they worshiped an all-good, all-powerful, all-wise God. So they knew their, their author, and they knew that he was all-powerful, all-good, and all-wise. Um, and so it was very important for God's people in the Old Testament to uh, just maintain an understanding of the story that was unfolding. Um, and anytime they forgot or they misunderstood the story, um, that's when things went really badly. Uh, and so they're constantly being reminded of the story, both what's happened and what God has promised would come. Um, God starts this uh, reminding of the story and what's going to you know, come uh, next, even in the garden with Adam and Eve. Um, after they have sinned against God and uh, they're experiencing the consequences of that, and um, there's, there's these words said to the, the serpent, uh, which are part curse and part prophecy, and this is what they are. Genesis 3, 14 and 15, the Lord, said, Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's the first prophecy of a coming savior, an offspring, a, a serpent crusher that would one day come from the offspring of Adam and Eve, which obviously the offspring of Adam and Eve is all of, of humanity. Um, Part of how God would bring about this serpent-crushing offspring was out of a nation that he would build. And that nation would start with Abraham and Sarah. Um, they're given promises by God in places like Genesis 12. Uh, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and I, will bless him who dis, I will curse him who dishonors you and I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So now the story is being expanded to uh, not just an offspring that's going to come, but a nation that God is going to build uh, from uh, Abraham and Sarah. And so that promise, uh, the viability of that promise looks very threatened on many occasions in the unfolding story of the Old Testament. I mean, very early on after this, it's threatened by a famine and by slavery. So one of the things that happens that Abraham and Sarah do have a, a child in their old age against all odds, and that child then has children, and those children have children. And it begins to develop into the beginnings of a nation. And famine breaks out. And they're, they're, in, they're, they're being threatened to starve to death. And, uh, and, and so what happens is that uh, they end up through a series of amazing events in God's providence. They end up in Egypt. And it's in Egypt where they find food and they start to live there. And they start to proliferate. And they have lots of babies. And, uh, and the pharaoh of Egypt begins to get a little concerned about that. First thing he does is, is enslave them. Um, 
And so they're working in these into intolerable conditions. They were paying, obviously, no pay and, and meager rations. Uh, and yet, they thrive. They continue to thrive, even under slavery. And the Pharaoh gets even more concerned. And so he starts killing off all the male babies. Uh, and so they've survived a famine so far and enslavement, but will they survive genocide? Right? And how, how will they be able to continue the story that God is writing? And what God does in the unfolding of the story is he chooses a stuttering, fearful, somewhat angry man named Moses to go and deliver them. <laughs> and so he speaks to Moses in a burning bush, and he says this to Moses in Exodus 3. Uh, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. This is 500 years after Abraham. And God's letting Moses know, hey, I didn't forget. I didn't forget the story. I didn't forget the promises that I, that I made. I'm still writing the story. And so God rescues his people out of the hand of the Egyptians. He does bring them into a new land. And so for the first time, this budding nation has a plot of ground. It's a geopolitical unit at that point. And nation building is not an easy task, but eventually they even become a kingdom. And they have a king, and they're the greatest king of the Old Testament is David. And so God has some things to say to David. And here's one example, 2 Samuel 7, uh, verse 12. When your days, talking to David, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that's a thousand years after Abraham. God yet again saying, hey, hey, I didn't forget. I didn't, I didn't forget those promises that I've made to the different people that have played their part in the story. And, and so David's kingdom grows, proliferates, and Solomon, uh, his kingdom grows and proliferates. It looks like things are going pretty well. Maybe God's going to bring that serpent-crushing offspring. You know, it seems like a great moment for that. And it does go well until it doesn't. And then... God's people rebel. They become idol worshipers. The kingdom splits in half. Now two, you have a northern and a southern kingdom. Then those two kingdoms are exiled, and the whole geopolitical unit is wiped out. And it seems like the story has crashed and burned. And yet, in this time of exile, God sends prophets. They know the story. And they are reminders for Israel of the story, a, a, a prophecy that we read a lot at Christmas time. Uh, we read this last week, uh, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So that's 300 years after David. And not just Isaiah, but other prophets are reminding them of the story. God hasn't forgotten. God's still writing the story. He's still unfolding. And these prophets are sent uh, to remind them. Um, there is a, pro- a partial return of, the, of God's people. They do build a temple. It's kind of a wimpy temple. Uh, even the people that are old enough to remember Solomon's temple are like crying because it's so wimpy. Um, but it is kind of a return and, and a re- reestablishment. Um, but they really are a puppet government at that point uh, with the Persians. The Greeks come in. They make them a, basically a puppet government. They really don't have power and sovereignty over their nation. And then the Romans come in. And you definitely don't have power and sovereignty over your nation when the Romans are in, char- are in charge. And 400 years in that time passes with no prophet, no word from God, nothing. Just waiting, right? So we think about that timeline, and this is like Old Testament history, as simple as it possibly could be made, I think. Um, Can you give me that little? Yeah. Um, So so this, this is the kind of the big chunks of things in Old Testament uh, history. Think about Abraham, 2,000 years before Christ. Um, Moses is about 1,500 years. This, and I'm simplifying this, okay? About 1,500 years before Christ. David, that's not a simplification. He's right at 1,000 B.C. before Christ. Exile is around 500. So you see kind of 500-year chunks. And then Jesus is born around the first century, right? This is how long they've been waiting for Christ to come. That's a long time. <laughs> 2,000 years is a long time. Um, so were there anybody, you know, was there anybody waiting when, when Jesus did show up? Was there any faithful people that were continuing to trust that God was writing a story and that it was continually unfolding? The answer is yes. And Simeon and Anna are the poster children for those who are waiting. All that was introduction for this passage. It's not going to be that long of a sermon. Don't, don't worry. Um, the first um, one that we get to see in Luke 2 is Simeon. And so verse 25 says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting, there's that word, for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death, Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, He took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, and we're going to hold off right there. So he's he's the waiter number one right here. He's been waiting. And uh, this promise 
of Christ is a long time coming. And so Simeon is, is faithfully waiting for God to make good on that promise. And, the, and his understanding of the promise is that God would comfort and console Israel. And how would God comfort and console Israel? By bringing the Messiah. By bringing the Christ. That's the, basically the Greek uh, for Messiah. And how is he able to do this, right? I mean, I think that's one of the questions that kind of comes to, to mind as you look at this. How could he be so faith-filled, right? How could he trust that, that God is going to do that? And, and so the, the couple of things that uh, Luke reveals here about him, one is the work of the Holy Spirit in Simeon's life. He mentions the Holy Spirit three times. I don't think that's by accident, right? He says the Holy Spirit is upon Simeon. He says the Holy Spirit is revealing things to him, like you're not going to die before the Christ comes. Right? Uh, the Holy Spirit is moving him to come to the temple on that particular day at that particular time. Think about the timing <laughs> that has to happen, right? Like he has to make his toast at just the right time so he can leave the door and get there to the temple as Joseph and Mary and the baby are walking in, and boom, they have this encounter. And Luke is saying that the Holy Spirit is orchestrating all of these things. But it's not just the work of the Spirit. It's also the work of the Word in Simeon's life. Now look at what Simeon says in verse 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So he speaks of, of God's faithfulness um, in terms of being according to your word. So, yes, the work of the Spirit, but the work of the Spirit through God's word. Um, he's quoting mostly from Isaiah. He's been reading Isaiah. And he's, he's putting some of the, 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 the things together that he's read in Isaiah with assistance from the Holy Spirit. Um, and so he has taken this promise that's been given to him. And, and you know, Isaiah lived 700 years before Simeon. Right? This is amazing. Right? He's taking this scripture and he's trusting in this promise and he's now seeing it fulfilled before uh, his very eyes. He declares that this Messiah is going to bring a, quote, salvation, that, that, that this baby Jesus is, is somehow going to do a saving work that is going to save not just Israel, but the nations. This is partly how we know he's reading Isaiah, because Isaiah is all about light to the nations, salvation to the nations. And first century, in general, Jews are not walking around going, man, I hope God saves the nations. That's not what's on the front of their minds, but that's, on, that's what's on the front of Simeon's mind. And the reason is because is he's reading the Bible. And so the Spirit is working in the Scriptures to help assist him understand the story of God and how it's unfolding before his very eyes. Now, you read that and you think, well, does Simeon really understand the nature of this salvation he actually does, because look what he says in verse 33. He says, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary his mother, behold, 
This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is shocking. This is shocking. <laughs> I mean, he's like, wow, this is it. This is the Messiah. This, this baby, he's holding him up. With, I mean, that, that just that's weird. Um, take, taking the baby, uh, declaring that he's going to be the savior of the world. And you would think this is like a time to be really positive. Like, he's going to have an amazing administration. He's going to do all these things. Gonna be all no, he, he says, he's going to be opposed. He doesn't even say he's going to be opposed by some. <laughs> he just says he's going to be opposed. He does. He understands, at least to some degree, the nature of this, quote, salvation that Jesus is bringing. And so he speaks of his suffering, right? That he's going to be opposed. And he speaks of Mary's suffering. He's like, you're going to hurt so bad, it's going to feel like this metaphorical sword piercing your soul. That's shocking again. So he understands, certainly he probably doesn't understand it's going to be a cross and all that, but he's like, it's going to be suffering. He also describes a sifting, that those who are high and lifted up are brought down. Those who are low are brought up, right? That's another way to say he's bringing a revolution. When, when things are turned upside down, that's a, a revolution, right? <laughs> Not, those that are high and prideful and lifted up against God are brought down. Those that are low and humble and needy, they are brought high. Jesus is going to bring a revolution. And this is really God's way. This is what he does. I mean, this is what we see throughout the unfolding of the Old Testament story. He's constantly bringing this, this revolution that's pointing forward to this greater revolution that, that Christ is going to bring through his work on the cross. Um, so, what, what we see in Simeon's life, in terms of, of how do we wait well, how do we stay uh, aware of the, the unfolding story is the Word and the Spirit. Right? Reading our Bibles with the assistance of God's Spirit. Right? Um, now, as, as I read this, I thought, what, why does, what's Anna doing in there? Right? So let, let, let's, let's kind of take that question to this next couple of verses here. What, what, why Anna? Um, it says, there was a prophetess, verse 36, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer, night and day, and coming up at the very hour she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now she gets, she gets fewer verses than Simeon, she, and she doesn't get any quotes. There's no quotes from Anna. Um, now our understanding is Luke is getting this information from Mary, right? That Mary is telling her the story and, and that Luke has uh, 
access to, to Mary. But what Luke does is describe her own personal suffering. Her own personal suffering. So she's widowed in her 20s. And she stays a widow for the next 60 years. So when she was my age, she was halfway. She was at year 30. Waiting. That she, she is just so much a poster child for waiting. Right? You see, her, her story is, is like a parable of the story of Israel waiting. And so for, for 60 years, she's been waiting. And how does she wait? Look how she waits. Now, one is she waits at the temple. She's always at the temple. Why would she do that? You know, can she worship remotely? I mean, what, what's, what's the problem? Well, that's where God has chosen for His Old Testament people to manifest His presence. So she wants to be where God's presence is. So she's coming to the temple for 60 years, staying close to the presence of God. But she's not just staying close. She's worshiping God. Right? She is ascribing ultimate worth to God, which is what worship is, right? You're saying, God, you have ultimate worth over and against everything else in my life, right? Uh, she's doing that through fasting, which is, is actually a way to kind of detach yourself from the world and attach yourself to God. It's not the only reason, but it is one of the reasons to uh, kind of negate the worth of the things that are around you, to ascribe ultimate worth to God. doesn't mean things around you don't matter. doesn't mean you don't need to eat, right? But it's, a, it's an opportunity to ascribe ultimate worth to God. And she's praying. She's, she's talking to God. She's, she's not just ascribing worth to Him, singing to Him, however, the, you know, she's doing that. Uh, but she's talking to Him. Right? She's praying to Him. And so I think Anna adds to uh, what we learned from Simeon, right? We learned from Simeon about the Word and the Spirit. And here we learn about worship and prayer and fasting. And this more the relationship side of engaging with God. Yes, through His Word. Yes, assisted in the Spirit, but in a relational uh, kind of way. Um, and so we learn from these two saints how to wait, how to wait. Um, now, this kind of thinking is very different <laughs> than Western culture. It is very different than, honestly, most professing Christians in the West, right? The, our thinking is more, um, I'm going to self-actualize and God's going to help me. I've got dreams and I'm going to get God to help me make my dreams come true. I mean, you know, looking at the, uh, some, some of the campaigns around the University of Texas campus, and um, they, their big campaign right now is Make It Your Texas, right? And uh, it's everywhere. Now, it, it's kind of clever because it, the why and the, you know, you can see it's not just your, but it's our, too. It's your Texas, it's our Texas. Um, and so what I've been doing when I see those, I go to God, I pray to God, and I say, God, make it your Texas, Make it your Texas. <laughs> Do something on this campus. 
that, that we cannot even explain except in terms of you and your work here on this campus. Right? He's the ultimate story writer, even on the campus of the University of Texas, in these neighborhoods around our church, in the city, in the state, in the nation, in the world. We don't self-actualize and make it ours, make it yours, however you want to say it. He is sovereign over these things. Now, does that mean we don't have responsibility? No, it, it, we do. We are part of the story, and we have responsibility in that story. But we understand that he is the ultimate writer of the story. I mean, can, can you imagine sitting down with Simeon and Anna and say, you guys, what are you dreaming right now? What do you, what do you want? What do you want out of life? Let's make some meaning. How can, how can, I mean, it would be ridiculous. They would look at you like you're crazy. No, I, the story is what I read in this Bible, and I'm waiting for God to, to unfold that story. God is writing the tale that we've fallen into. Whether we acknowledge it or not, this is what is true. He is writing the tale that we have fallen into. So how do we move forward knowing that, right? Well, let's, again, take a page from Simeon and Anna. One is show up at the temple. And by that, I don't mean this building. <laughs> I mean Jesus. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the, the locus point of God's activity on planet Earth. So if you want to know God, you want to be in relationship with God, it is through faith in Christ, what Christ has done on the cross. To, to pay for our, our sins. And so through faith in Him, we get a relationship with God. We don't have to go to a brick-and-mortar building for that. We go to Christ. So go to Christ. If you've not yet done that, I'd encourage you to do that today, to confess your sins and to acknowledge that His saving work on the cross is the only hope that you have and to receive that in faith. That's what starts this off. Right? And then with that start, then you can take a page from Simeon and Anna as well. So Simeon teaches us that we stay in God's Word. We, we read the Bible. We encounter God in the power of the Spirit in His Word. And sometimes, you know, you're, you're reading the Bible. Like I've been reading, a, a read through the Bible um, this year. And like right now I'm in Chronicles and I'm just going through these long lineages and genealogies and I'm going, God, what is going on? Like, I don't know what I'm going to get out of this. <laughs> and I'm the pastor, right? Like, like you'd think, you know, I could come up with something, right? And, and then I see in this lineage, uh, it's like of, of priests that were in charge of music. That said, David put them in charge of music and how their ministry of music was serving the people of God. And so I, I, I got a, a screenshot of that and sent it to uh, somebody that uh, I know is, needs some encouragement. He's a, a worship leader. And I was like, man, what you do matters this morning. And I sent it to him. You know? And that was like at First Chronicles chapter 3. There, I, his word, right? no matter what part of it, that we're reading. Like, God is at work in that word through the power of the Spirit. Uh, but we also want to take a page out of Anna's book as well. That it's not just a, uh, some information that we're learning and we're getting to know better, 
but we are encountering a living God. That that word is a means for us to worship God, to ascribe ultimate worth to God, to pray to God, to encounter a living God. I was in this coffee shop uh, this week, and um, I was in the suburbs, so I, and I knew that because everyone in the in the coffee shop was a Christian. Um, I knew it wasn't in Central Austin, and so I sat down and I could hear these two conversations on either side of me. And one was a couple of Christians, and they were talking about the Bible in a very technical way. They were like talking about their study Bible and some like technical aspects of of the scriptures. And then they finished their coffee, and then they were done. On the other side was some Christians talking, and they were talking about what God was teaching them. It was very relational, um, but there was no mention of the Bible. And I was like, I really wish you guys could get together, you know? <laughs> because you need both, right? You, you need the Scriptures. This is the, the, where we encounter God. This is where we, we get to the Gospel anew every time we go to the Scriptures. Um, and yeah, we need to go at it with a posture of interacting with the living God. Right? And so I think Simeon and Anna give us some, some great snapshots of what it takes to wait well.